Welcome to this episode of the Atlantic Career Journey Podcast. Today's guest is Jessica Cohen, who is a Senior Customer Success Manager at Slack. I worked with Jessica at Macy's and was always impressed with her analytical approach to solving complex problems. We shared a common passion for technology solutions, and she's worked for some great companies to help customers work smarter. She's also traveled to some really cool destinations for her various jobs, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about her adventures. So welcome to the podcast, Jessica. Thanks, Paul. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. I'm glad you're in uh, East Coast time again, because when I worked with you, you were three hours behind. So um, that's awesome. So you, um, you and I worked together at Macy's, and uh, we were on separate coasts, but uh, I always enjoyed our conversations. You were um, always asking why and how can this be solved better, and uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. But let's start with your background. Just tell me a little bit about where you were uh, born and raised, um, you know, kind of what, what your school looked like coming in from high school into college, and then how you got your first job. Sure. So I was born and raised in New York City. Um, I actually grew up in Queens, but went to high school in Manhattan. I went to one of the elite high schools in Manhattan that you test into. So I was very fortunate from a young age. I was there from seventh through 12th grade, which means they have a little bit more flexibility with your curriculum. So in addition to your standard math and social studies and literature type classes, I also took three years of art history and three years of music appreciation and then got to do some internships around the city for my senior year. So it was a, a unique and different experience, but one that I'm definitely grateful for. Wow. So it's almost, it almost had like a college flavor too, where you could build a curriculum a little bit. You had some more advanced topics or, or subjects than, than the standard high school would offer. That's actually exactly what they said, that basically by the end of 10th grade, you had finished the majority of your New York State high school curriculum. So for 11th and 12th grade, it was mostly electives. You could pursue different AP classes if you wanted to, and then you got school credit for doing different internships and volunteer activities throughout the city. Wow. So what were some of your, um, your favorite subjects or ones that you, you recognized your talent? Oh gosh, back in high school, I was the science kid up until my senior year. Um, all throughout high school, I really enjoyed those science classes. I enjoyed labs. I really wanted to get my hands on things. Um, and up through AP chemistry, I did pretty well. And then I got to AP physics and the math just blew me out of the water. That was really the first time in my life where I said, wow, I can't do this. I am struggling in this class. Um, now, as it turned out, I had been admitted to Rice University early decision. So I did not have to worry too much about the grade in AP physics. And my professor and I, or I guess he was just my teacher at the time, he and I had a deal that he wouldn't fail me if I did not sleep <laughs> in his line of vision. Deal. <laughs> um, oh, that's too funny. So you had you had a, a propensity for science, and you mentioned these internships. So were there were there certain science internships that you were able to go into in the city? So I actually ended up working as uh, two things outside of school. I was working as what was called an explainer in the New York Hall of Science. So it's a children's science museum, kind of hands-on, similar to the Exploratorium in San Francisco and other places like that. And I actually worked there every Saturday morning, uh, standing around the exhibits, explaining as the children came by. I led school groups and other Boy Scout troops and things like that through the museums. And then I also got to give demonstrations 
there was one around lasers, there was one around liquid nitrogen, and my favorite was actually dissecting a cow's eye in front of children. I really, enjoy, again, I enjoyed getting my hands dirty and kind of grossing out the children at the same time, but it was a really great experience. I'm blown away that you were able to do this in high school. I think we, we did a, I think it was a, a fetal pig, like, um, you know, a lot of the other high schools, but to do some of that, especially in a work, I mean, I worked at Hardy's. It wouldn't let me run the roast beef slicer because I was afraid I was going to cut my finger. So that's, that's crazy. Well, that's awesome. So you get some internships, you got certainly some science background. Um, so as you're kind of, you know, getting ready to graduate and you got accepted to Rice early, what were you thinking you wanted to pursue in college? I walked into college knowing I wanted to be a geologist, which okay. I am not now. Um, <laughs> That's true. The start of that story, actually, we have to go back even before college and even before high school to some degree. When I was 13, I was accepted to the Johns Hopkins program Center for Talented Youth. I don't even think it exists anymore. It's a program where in seventh grade, you're invited to take the SATs. And if you score above a certain range, you're invited to what is essentially summer school for nerds. Um, it's so nerdy that every afternoon after eight hours of classes, there are two activity periods that were known as mandatory fun. Because if those activity periods didn't exist, there were a lot of us who would just sit and continue doing homework for the rest of the night. <laughs> uh, and that first summer, I took a class in astronomy because I'd always loved the stars, I'd always looked, liked looking up, and the first two and a half weeks were difficult for me. I could follow along, but I definitely wasn't processing the physics side of things. I was just too young. Mm -hmm. But when we got to the last three days, the focus, the focus shifted away from the stars and to the planets, and I fell in love. I was just intrigued by the Goldilocks theory of planets, saying that Venus is too hot and Mars is too cold, but the Earth is just right. And there was something about that that fascinated me. And I wanted to know more. I wanted to understand why the Earth was just right and why the other planets were not. And so throughout high school, I read everything that I could get my hands on. I read a ton of Carl Sagan's books. And Carl Sagan said, when we send people to Mars, we have to send people. We can't send robots. Robots will not be smart enough. Robots will not be discerning enough to know whether to pick up rock A or rock B. Now, as it turns out, we know 25 years later that he was wrong and that rocks can, or robots can be discerning enough. But when I walked into college, I said, okay, I'm going to be a geologist because then I'm going to go on to study planetary geology and I'm going to be an astronaut. That was, wow. that was my plan at 18. Did you, so did either of your parents have a, a science um, or an aerospace background? <laughs> Neither, not at all. My dad is a lawyer. My mom was a special ed teacher and then a special ed administrator in the New York City public school system. So both well-educated, both professionals, neither of them had anything to do with science. Hmm. That is fascinating. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's I, fascinating. I think they were annoyed with me. You know, they bought me a couple of telescopes when I was a kid to let me look at things, but yeah. uh, I was definitely just out on my own. So how did you go from New York City, where I know my youngest is dreaming to live there for the rest of her life, 
to want to go to Texas to study? How does that, how does that take place? I chose my college based on how dinners were served. Okay. <laughs> um, Do tell. This is probably more than anyone ever needs to know about me. Um, I have, I struggle with anxiety and depression. And I can say that now because I can put words to things after years of dealing with this. When I look back to high school, I recognize a lot of the symptoms and a lot of the triggers. I just didn't know what it was called. I just thought that was the stress of being a teenager. One of the things that I was most afraid about when going to college was having to find people to eat with. I was afraid of walking into a giant cafeteria and not knowing anyone and not having any friends to sit down with. And I didn't want to be that scared person who was either reading a book on their own or eating in the bathroom. Oh, wow. Some social anxiety going on. It was. It was definitely a lot of that. So I am an extrovert. I want that social interaction. And when I don't get it, it puts me into a weird state. And so, yeah, Rice was at the top of my list because it was a relatively smaller school compared to others I looked at. It was relatively affordable at the time. It was about um, a third of the price of other comparable universities, And it was located next door to NASA. And I had a feeling that was where I wanted to end up working. But above all, the residential college system works so that you're having lunch and dinner with people that you're living with. Even in between classes at the time, everyone went back to their dorm, is what a residential college is, to eat. So I walked into lunch every day and there were 200 people that I knew and I could sit down with any of them. Hmm. And even, and dinners were served family style where it wasn't just about getting your tray and going through the line. Someone actually came out and kind of served food for the whole table. Now it was just students, but people still made the effort to put out a tablecloth and set the table and it felt a little bit more like being at home. And so that meal set up and the residential college system was kind of what uh, clinched it for me when it came to rice. Interesting. I had no idea that that was how, um, how they operated. So that's very cool. So you get in, you study geology and did you at any point when, when you're in undergrad, did you struggle with, okay, I thought I wanted to do this, but now I'm having questions about it. Or did you just really just pour yourself in and really loved it? As an undergrad, I poured myself in and just kept going with it. My senior year, I had a chance to do an internship at NASA, or it's really NASA adjacent, um, an organization called the Lunar and Planetary uh, Society down in Clear Lake, Texas. And I had a chance to intern with a professional researcher there. And so I would go down two or three days a week to do research in their libraries. I used a lot of firsthand Viking images and did my senior thesis on uh, looking at potential water retention patterns in Martian craters, essentially. Wow. Um, The easiest way to think about it, some of what I have shown, what I tried to show has since been glossed over and, and extrapolated by so many smarter people than me. But essentially the way to think about it is if you sit in the bathtub too long or you take multiple baths on successive days, you end up with bathtub rings or water 
dirt mark rings around the sides of the bathtub. Mm -hmm. And I basically spent my year looking through Viking imagery from the 1970s, looking for bathtub rings in craters to suggest that at one time the water levels were higher. Uh, okay. So that's how they can figure out if there was water on that surface and then potentially could sustain life at one point. That's the idea. Yeah. Now they have a lot more sophisticated techniques and there's a lot more chemistry involved in the remote sensing. But at the time, this is what I was capable of. That and so that's what I did. <laughs> that's awesome. How was your experience at NASA? Um, it was a lot of fun. I, I got a chance to meet and work with people that I had read about for the previous 10 years and scientists and researchers that I, I was familiar with their work and then to be able to go to conferences and understand what people actually did in this field, I wanted to do it more. So when it came time to think about what was happening next, I never thought about applying for a job. Instead, I took the geology GREs and the, I guess the regular GREs, whatever it was at the time, and I applied to seven different grad schools. That was, that was what I was doing next. I was going straight into a PhD program. Okay. And you settled on, is it Brown? Is that where you went next? It's Brown, exactly. Yeah. Um, I ended up in Brown, at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. Okay. Um, at the time, there were about 10 schools with significant graduate programs in planetary geology. And I think I applied to seven of them and got into five of them. And when, as people say, when you get into Brown, it's hard to turn it down. Um, yeah. And also being originally from New York, having spent four years in Texas, my parents were excited to have me a little bit closer to home at that point. Yeah. Yeah. It was probably, uh, you, you certainly experienced a different culture in Texas than you did in New York or, or in Rhode Island, I'm sure. Very true. Yeah. Well, cool. So um, tell me a little bit about your experience at Brown. What did you study? So my experience at Brown was interesting because going straight to grad school out of undergrad, I don't think I was prepared for what grad school really is. I was still looking for undergrad. I was looking for the clubs and activities and for the social life that came with undergrad. And I was eventually able to find some of that, but it definitely wasn't there for everyone just because that's not what grad school is supposed to be. I was all of a sudden in school with people who were married, who had children, who were looking for a different lifestyle than I had. Mm -hmm. It took me a little bit to wrap my head around that. Plus grad school turned into a lot of independent study. And that was where the biggest change for me was. I was studying lunar geology I was studying a particular seven craters around the moon, looking for, um, looking for evidence of a very particular mineral called olivine that would indicate it was a, essentially a sample from the core of the moon, now on the surface in what we call central peaks of these craters, to be able to show what the inner parts of the moon were made of by looking at the surface now. It was a little bit of a study on the evolution of the moon. You know, my piece was... 0.0001% of everything that we know on the moon. And that's probably an overestimate right now. Yeah. But by going directly into research and having to do all of this independent work, I was not happy. And I remember 
Early in my second year of graduate school, I walked into my advisor's office and I was so excited by something that I thought I saw in an image, right? I was, I was doing all of the image manipulation and I ran into her office and I said, Carly, look at this. I think I found it. I'm really, this is it. We're going to have somewhere to go with this. And she looked at me and said, that's fascinating. That's really great. Why don't you study that for the next three months and then get back to me? Uh, and that was a turning point for me. I had to sit and think about, am I a, the kind of person who wants to sit in front of a computer in a dark lab by myself for the rest of my life? Mm -hmm. um, I was missing that social activity. And then I was also now missing just group work and brainstorming and problem solving. Um, and it all started to fall in on itself. And I, I will admit at the same time, um, I met the man who would become my husband. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, he was also in grad school at Brown. He was studying political science. And we started to get very serious very quickly. And in academia, your job options are severely limited. And you go to where the job options are. That's just how that job market works. Yeah, And he and I started looking and said, well, is there ever a place where we could both be tenured faculty together? And the answer was really no. Yeah. Um, and so at that point, we kind of said, well, are we in this for the long haul as a relationship? And we were. And then it was, are we in academia for the long haul? And we both decided that that could slip. And he left grad school six months before I did and got a job in Providence. And so when I graduated with my master's in planetary geosciences in, I guess it was May of 2001, I stayed in Providence and got a job there where I could build on my geology career. And it was the first time that I had to say, okay, I'm giving up on being an astronaut. I'm doing it for the right reasons but now I'm fixed to a city because I have a partner who already has a job. Yeah. And that's, I mean, those are, those are kind of real decisions that are life altering. Right. And especially if you've thought about one career path since you were 10, you know, now you're having to make, you know, when you're in that, it's the right decision. But, you know, when you think about it without the emotions, you're like, wow, you're giving up your career for, um, you know, practical reasons. Um, that's, that's a huge, that's a huge decision. Not an easy one either. It wasn't easy, but it felt like the right thing to do at the time. And it mm -hmm. still feels like the right thing. Yeah. I still love planetary geosciences and I will pick up the newspaper and read all about the Martian landers and all about the comets and things like that. And I still recognize names of people I went to grad school with in the news and things like that. Um, and I miss it, but it's a hobby now and that's okay. Yeah. And you know, fast forward almost 20 years, I have a really great life right now and I'm very happy with where I've been and what I've done in the past 20 years. And none of that would have happened if I had stayed in academia. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's probably, you know, some voice inside that was saying, okay, there's, there's enough red flags here that I've got to try and find something else. So when you, when you um, kind of leave the idea of, of academia and, and, you know, space travel and, 
astronauts. What's, um, what's next on the horizon for you? So I fell back on my traditional ge uh, geology education and I went to work as an environmental consultant. So I was one of those folks standing outside in a hard hat and a Carhartt jacket taking water samples and fuel oil samples out of the ground at Superfund sites. How long did you do that? <laughs> I did it for two years. Um, That's impressive. my favorite job ever. Um, <laughs> Builds characters, my parents would say. Yeah. I mean, it, it was a good job. It was... It taught me a lot. It was my first kind of in-office setting. I worked in a cubicle, you know, so I was out in the field half the time and then in my cubicle writing up the reports half the time. Um, it was a small consulting company that was out of uh, Boston and Rhode Island. And it was fine. I don't think I, when I started, I had no idea how long I was going to stay, but it was the right move at the right time. Mm -hmm. And about a year and a half in, I was reading a lot of regulations written by the Environmental Protection Agency. And that was where my interest really started to get peaked again. And I said, you know, if I'm going to spend the rest of my life in this field, I don't want to be following the regulations. I'd rather be writing the regulations. Mm. So I started to look at going back to grad school with the support of my husband this time, because we were married by then. Yeah. Um, to say, what could I go back for that would help me do that? And so I started to look at programs in science and technology policy. Um, I actually first heard about it because I was listening to an NPR show. I think it was All Things Considered, but I'm not positive. And there was a professor from the Yale School of Science and Technology and policy, I'm not sure exactly what the school is, but he was on and I'm like, wow, he's fascinating. I wanna do that. And so back in 2003, I opened up the internet and stalked this guy until I found his email <laughs> and sent him an email and said, would you be willing to have a chat with me to just talk about what it takes to get into this field? Um, and he did, he talked to me and I, I still remember sitting in, the, in my car in the parking lot of my job yeah. trying to get a little bit of privacy, right? We were still on flip phones. Yep. And that was when I said, okay, I can do this. And so I applied to a bunch of different schools and I got into MIT, into the technology and policy program, which is a program designed to take people who have bachelor's and usually master's degrees in other science and engineering fields and teach you enough finance and economics and history and policy and in my case organizational behavior to work at the forefront of the two mm -hmm. and when i got to mit you basically have two weeks at the beginning of the semester to find a lab or a research group to work with so that they pay for your tuition and you get a small stipend mm -hmm. um, i was lucky enough to have a have had tuition paid for and had a stipend at brown and then got it again at MIT. So I actually have my two master's degrees that I graduated without any significant school debt. Now that doesn't mean that I didn't have debt just from you know continuing to live life. At the time, I think my stipends were somewhere around seven or $800 a month. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was definitely, it was the right move for my career. And once I was working with a research group, it was the right decision financially as well. 
that's a great lesson. Actually, you mentioned too, I'll go back to the phone call with the professor because, you know, just showing that initiative and, you know, finding this person. And I don't know if you had to do a hard sell to get him to talk to you, but I know for a lot of young people that ask for information, um, people are generally willing to give it. And so that's, that's a pretty big lesson to say, you know what, this person helped you kind of figure out this is the path you want to go down next and, you know, found, you know, some information that could take you into that next step. Absolutely. The other thing is the tuition. So just because you go to grad school doesn't mean you're going to roll up a bunch of additional debt that you will have to pay for later. There are opportunities to get paid while you are studying and you should research any and all options to do that. Absolutely. Definitely in science and engineering fields, fellowships, stipends, tuition reimbursement is more common. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, this was the first time around in Brown. One of the reasons that um, my husband and I did eventually leave is because he was not getting paid to go to school. Um, mm. So there was a little bit of a difference there just by virtue of what subjects we were studying. Yep. Yeah. It's uh yeah, there are certain fields where you're not covered. Um, I know my daughter's looking at PA schools and that will be uh, some level of debt incurred with that, but that's, exactly. that's, another, that's another podcast. So, so you mentioned organizational behavior and this is where I, it, that resonates with me because that's how I know you uh, when we work together. But tell me a little bit about where that led. So when I got to MIT, I interviewed with a number of different research groups to see what I would be studying and thinking I was going into environmental policy. I actually almost went to work for a group that was studying carbon sequestration the idea of being able to take all the excess carbon dioxide that we're releasing into the atmosphere and essentially hide it somewhere, whether that be under the sea or under the earth or in trees, something like that. So it's bound up in other elements and doesn't get released into the atmosphere. But then I got introduced to folks at a group called the, um, it was called the Lean Aeronautics initiative at the time. It has since been called the Lean Advancement Initiative. But I started to talk to them and they were looking for new students and they did a lot of work with the Air Force and other um, aeronautical engineering companies. And because I had very minimal but a little bit of mission planning experience from my time at Brown, and I understood how that side of the world worked, they took me in. And I remember the first paper that I read and the first project that I worked on was looking at a particular missile system that I think was being built by Northrop Grumman at the time. And we were studying how to basically improve the process, how to take lean manufacturing techniques that had been invented um, or not invented, but devised by the Japanese and then written down in the book, The Machine That Changed the World, um, taking those techniques and applying them to missile development. Well, I didn't really want to work on making it easier to build missiles for the rest of my life, but we'll take that moment out of it. Um, <laughs> while at MIT, I was in the engineering systems division, and this professor was half in the engineering systems division, but also half in the Sloan School of Business. And so by working with him, I was able to actually take classes in both departments. And he was studying the organizational behavior and change implications 
of putting some of these lean manufacturing processes into the Air Force, essentially. So I ended up working with him studying three different Air Force bases. They were all part of the Air Force Materiel Command. We looked at how the Air Force was using lean techniques to improve their maintenance and repair processes. So just like we as individuals have to take our car in for an oil change every so often, I'm not really good with that stuff, the U.S. Air Force has to bring their planes in to be repaired and worked on at every so often. Yep. And they were looking to improve that. Um, they had to make it a more efficient process. They wanted to save some money. They wanted to make sure that they had the planes in the right locations with the right parts at any given time. And so we helped study how lean techniques could improve their maintenance and repair facilities. Very cool. Yeah. I, and that's, that's something I didn't realize that the military was getting into um, even back then, but I mean, the, the supply chain for that's incredible. And so for them to make any sort of savings, um, you know, is huge for that. Exactly. And they have a, an added complication that no one really thinks about that very often when parts break in 30 year old airplanes, the original supplier or manufacturer of those parts no longer exists. Mm -hmm. And so it adds this extra level of complication that you have to figure out, are we going to build this again or are we going to change it? Yes. Yeah. My brother-in-law was in the Navy and he was a flight engineer and he had stories about that where they would get, they'd land, something would break. They didn't have a part for it. They had to wait for it. And it like cannibalized from some of their aircraft and fly. So sometimes they'd be grounded for a couple of days to a week waiting on a part, which is crazy. Yeah, that word you throw out there, cannibalize, that was something we studied a whole lot, um, especially when it came to organizational change and change management. Because one of the recommendations that we made at some point was you got to stop that. You have to stop passing the buck on the problem. Yeah. And that was a mentality that people really didn't want to shake. Yes, it caused longer term problems, but in the short term, you got the planes back in the air. And that was what mattered. That was what people were graded on. So it was really my first introduction to what it takes to change people's mindset around a very small policy or technology change while at the same time getting them to embrace a, a different way of thinking. Yeah, you know, we, we talked, you know, before about hero mentality. And, you know, if, if you've got something that's broken and somebody flies in to save the day, hero, right? Great, we can actually move on. But real problem because you can't scale that and you can't fly that person in every single time something breaks. And so, you know, what looks like a short-term win um, really is a longer-term liability. Absolutely. And where I got excited was when I started to study how incentive structures um, either continued or stopped that kind of behavior, right? What happens when you apply rational economic thought to that, that question, right? Are, are we incentivizing people on the limited number of pieces that they have to pull from a second plane? Or are we incentivizing people based on the, that how fast that turnaround is to get that plane back in the air. 
Mm-hmm. That policy decision makes a very big difference on how things get used. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. So that that was your initial exposure into um, the lean thinking and organizational change. Exactly. And while I was working for the Air Force, I met a woman named Jane who worked for IBM Business Consulting. And she was doing similar projects to what I was doing as a research assistant, but she was doing it for real. So when I graduated for MIT, she helped me get an interview and I applied for a job as a consultant with IBM. And so I'll call it my first real job doing something along the lines of what I do now was with IBM Consulting Services. I spent two years in their strategy and change practice working as part of change management teams on SAP implementations. Okay. And I really liked IBM. It was tough. It was difficult, but in a good way. The downside was that I was away from home four nights a week. And that takes a toll. I was definitely on the road continuously. I was one of those people who was at the airport every Monday morning and not coming back until late on Thursday or late on Friday, depending on the customer. Mm -hmm. And for someone in a young marriage, that was difficult. Yeah. And I had to make some decisions. And again, it was a family thing that finally made the decision for me, which was a good thing. My husband by this time was working for a biotech company. We were both living in Boston where we had stayed after MIT and he got an opportunity to move overseas with his company. And he and I sat down and said, okay, on one hand, I've, I'm two years into a career that I kind of like, but they'll give me a leave of absence. I can, I don't have to quit. I can just take the leave of absence and see what happens. Um, and we've always wanted to live abroad. You know, when we said we wanted to live abroad, I think we secretly just meant London. And then when someone offered us Copenhagen, we had to think about it. Um, But eventually in December of 2006, we picked up and moved across the ocean. Wow. That's, that's a, I mean, you start thinking about all of the things you've described around, you know, what you were studying, what you wanted to do and, you know, kind of, you know, getting closer to home. And all of a sudden you've got this great opportunity that falls in your lap that not everybody would have the guts or courage to do. But I think, you know, it sounds like, you know, you and your husband certainly aligned making joint decisions uh, for the best for your marriage and certainly your opportunities. So, you know, what a great opportunity to do that. So you get to Copenhagen, don't know anybody there, don't know the language. True. How's that work? Um, So amazingly, at the time in Denmark, the unemployment rate was under 4%. So there were lots of jobs available. Mm -hmm. And there's a website called jobsincopenhagen.com. And it was a website that advertised English language jobs in Copenhagen, of which there were lots of them. Denmark is a fabulous country that I would highly recommend everyone go and visit. And we tell a joke often that says it's the perfect place to live abroad because everyone speaks English, they drink really good beer, and they save their Jews from the Nazis. 
Yeah, that's that's three bonuses right there, and they're they're really tall people. I worked with really uh, tall. Now, as it turns out, that last point is not totally true, but that also <laughs> the, was a story for a different podcast. Yeah, the ones um, I met were they were all six foot four taller. It was insane. I'm like, oh, absolutely, and I wore a lot of high heels because I'm <laughs> not, and I looked up a lot. Um, <laughs> but so I ended up, I got a job. With Maersk Line, which is uh, at the, now it's just Maersk. At the time, it was the world's largest container shipping company. I knew nothing about container shipping. Um, I knew nothing about the Danish economy, but I knew enough about organizational change and organizational behavior that I started to work in the HR department on the organizational effectiveness team. Okay. And I started in the organizational effectiveness team working with a man named Jesper Thompson, who I'd like to think is still a mentor to this day. I only speak to him every couple of years, but he really had a very, very significant impact on my career and my life. And Maersk was a fascinating place to work because they very much had a philosophy that they were hiring you for your potential in as much as they were hiring you for that particular job. So about six months into my career at Maersk, I was sat down for my mid-year review with Jesper and a couple of interesting things happened. Um, number one, he gave me a raise. And when I asked why, he told me he was making my salary whole. He basically said that when I started in the job, he knew I was so desperate to get a job that he lowballed the salary knowing that I wouldn't know any better and he felt guilty enough that he had to fix it. Wow. Says a lot about him as an individual. Um, it does. It does say a lot about him as an individual. And it, it also has made me think since then that that's actually a really important conversation for everyone to have. And these days to know your worth is a little bit easier with sites like Glassdoor and asking around. And that mm -hmm. one moment taught me that the fact that no one talks about what their salaries are is not cool. Um, I, you know, the old CEO of Whole Foods before they were bought by Amazon was a big believer in the movement to make everyone's salary public um, so that people could have conversations with their bosses. Like, why does Billy make more money than I do? Well, because mm -hmm. Billy has this many years of experience and contributes to these projects, he felt that by making it open and transparent, you could have thoughtful and fact-based conversations around it. Yeah. Um, so now I do my research before I asked for salary estimates when I'm applying for a new job. And I would highly recommend everyone really use market principles to know what you are worth out there. And that's really important as a female too, because traditionally, um, females have been underpaid and you know what you just mentioned where that I know was a unique example because you were new to the country but you know a lot of times there are females I've had my I've had conversations with my wife and my girls about this is you know you you don't have to take that first offer and it might be kind of low and don't discount yourself if you don't have every single qualification on that job there are things you bring that aren't on that sheet that are worth some value as well. And so having that conversation and that negotiation with your employer um, can certainly help close that gap that exists today between men and women's salaries. Absolutely. I would also add to that, that you should know what benefits are important to you. Um, I know this is skipping ahead a little bit, but to Paul, when I joined you at Macy's, 
um, I negotiated not around my salary, but actually around my vacation time. The salary was where I wanted it to be, and I was very happy with that, but I was really not looking forward to going back to only three weeks of vacation versus the four that I had had at my previous job, yeah. and that was the sticking point for me. That's interesting, because you're right. I mean, I know that you know Europe tends to shut down in August because everyone's on holiday, and they, they really do... Uh, appreciate their 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 time off and that's just a given it's not like you start with two weeks and you accrue it until you get to be a 15-year vet and you finally get your four weeks or whatever you know it's very different exactly Exactly. but so the second thing that happened in that mid-year review was Jesper asked me you know with a smile on his face that only Jesper could have he said so where do you want to be in five years and at the time, the company was going through a, a strategy project. They, it was very secret. It was very hidden. But they had told people, we are rethinking the strategy of the company. And we're going to have some more announcements for you in a couple of months. And I said, I want to be on that team the next time they redo the strategy again. That's where I think I can be impactful. And I think that's the coolest part, deciding like where a company is going in the future. Mm-hmm. And about a month later, he came back and said, okay, you have a position on the strategy team report there next week. Um, and that was super cool of him because he was a sponsor. He was exactly what all the books tell you to find at a company. Mm-hmm. He was someone who would speak up for me, who saw my potential and who wasn't scared of losing me to another team because he knew I would still be in the company. Those are rare. And it's, it's great that you actually had a company and a, a, a manager that, you know, really understood what you wanted to do and, and tried to make that happen. It's great to be in a company too, where you can move around and grow professionally without having to leave a company for a job that, you know, allows you to grow. So the- and that's really what I got at Maersk. I was there for a little bit under six years And I moved around to seven or eight different positions in those years. And my last position was actually back with Jesper. Um, So he bookended my career there. And I was sad when I left Maersk. I was moving back to Boston. Maersk didn't have an office there. Um, And I was scared. I was, you know, I had to make some big decisions in my career. But looking back on those years with Maersk and in Copenhagen, man, I would do it over again in a heartbeat. What were some of the experiences or lessons that you learned um, working overseas? Wow, there were a lot of them. Um, Because of the positions that I ended up in after that first role in HR, and even in that role in HR a little bit, I basically spent the next five years working in different strategic projects. So I would come in kind of towards the end of the design phase of a project. I would learn what was going to change in the company, whether it be a new technology, a new process, something like that. And then I would help implement that new something um, throughout the company. And by virtue of being a shipping line, Maersk had offices in 160 different countries. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't get a chance to visit 160 countries, but I had a chance to visit over 40 countries in those five years. So not only was I working with a 
diverse multinational team in Copenhagen, um, where, you know, usually about half the folks were Danish and half the folks were expats like me from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Then I actually got to learn what change management looked like in many, many different cultures. And it looks very different. Um, In China, I learned that it's the most important thing is to have the boss standing next to me telling people what's going to change. In Latin America, we learned that we had to become a part of the working team. We had to show them how we were listening to their concerns and how even though we were going in with messages of standardization, we had to respect the way they did work in that particular office and make sure that they saw the benefits of what we were doing. I yeah, learned that makes that. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say that makes total sense because without knowing, you know, sort of the, the, the ways to be successful in each of those cultures, you're destined to fail and it doesn't really matter what you try to do or if you lean back on, you know, what works in America. Did, um, did Maersk train you for that? Or was that something that you had to just sort of uh, pick up and learn on your own? Um, what's that, what does that look like from a company perspective? There was a little bit of both. Um, I think it, there was definitely leadership classes and facilitation classes and public speaking classes and things like that that I took at Maersk. But then on my own, I also started to do more research into the differences in cultures And as it turns out, I was lucky enough to have a good friend who worked for, um, she was a researcher for an organization that studied cultural differences. And so she helped me understand some of the different systems to measure things on and helped give me words. That's where I learned about things like feminine versus masculine cultures and Mm -hmm. high power distance versus low power distance countries. Um, she was just helping me put words onto what I could describe on my own. Makes sense. And it's certainly helpful. Uh, I know when I worked for the Olympics, it was, you know, we worked in different cultures and it was not always apparent, especially for, you know, a, a pretty sheltered American like myself to start out. So I, I definitely leaned on uh, coworkers and then just doing that research on your own, just going, okay, what are top, you know, cultural differences going into Korea versus China or Japan or Australia, you know, it's, it's, yeah, you do have to do some homework on your own. um, But it makes so much of a difference when you sort of respond in that local culture, they appreciate that because sometimes they don't expect it. And when you do offer that, then you're treated much, much more positively. That's what I found. Absolutely. And I found that as a loud, brash American, (laughs) <laughs> there were places that I did not fit in. Yeah. Um, so I hope that everyone listening knows that I learned a lot of this um, the hard way. Yeah. Sometimes you have to stub your toe a few times. Yeah. I I made a lot of mistakes. I, I, I still remember being in a meeting in Korea when I was trying to teach a very senior sales executive, sales manager, new techniques for managing and motivating his staff that we were Mm -hmm. trying to bring to the organization. Yep. And I kept asking him, when are you going to change? When are you going to do this differently? When are you going to try? And he lost his cool with me. And you could tell that this was not someone who lost their cool readily. 
And then I later learned, of course, that in Korea, questioning your superiors is the last thing that you want to do. And then making someone lose face in a meeting is really the last thing you want to do. And I had to eat crow. I had to really, you know, go in and learn to apologize. Yeah. Yeah. It's an important lesson, but it's, it's one that's, you know, you definitely need to be aware of that. So very good. I I know. um, So you've got, I'm just looking through your resume because you've got, um, you're like me, you've made a couple of different spots, uh, stops that are just amazing. But I want to, I want to get to the, at least to Port where we worked at Macy's. So tell me about your path from, from Maersk to Macy's. Um, so as we're talking, I'm realizing that networking has played a very large part of my career trajectory. Yep. <laughs> at least up until my most recent job. Um, but basically, when I got back to the States in uh, June of 2012, I did not have a job. We moved back to Boston because my husband's company asked him to come home, and he had a job, and I spent six months searching for a job. And it was at that point where I really had to ask myself where I wanted to go. I had two paths to choose from. I could either double down on logistics and stay in the supply chain world, or I could double down in change management and consulting and organizational behavior and that pathway. I, a lot of research around Boston told me that there was really no company in Boston where I could do both of those things. Mm. And I made the decision to walk away from logistics and step really wholeheartedly into change management and organizational behavior because that was really what I enjoyed. Logistics just happened to be the place that I did it. And over a series of jobs until I found the right fit in Boston, I started to do that change management and organizational behavior in tech companies. Okay. And after about four years in Boston and one of the worst winters ever, it was the winter with six feet of snow and the uh, walls of ice surrounding our apartment and a dog that loved to get up at five o'clock in the morning and go out when it was negative 19 degrees outside. My husband and I said, okay, we've been in Boston for four years. It's time to move again. (laughs) I remember that winter too, that y'all got pounded. Exactly. So the next year, I, we started looking, and um, as it turns out, the man who was the head of HR for Maersk when I was first hired moved to be the head of HR for Macy's. I did not know that. Yeah. That's interesting. Oh, yeah. And so I was looking through LinkedIn for jobs in San Francisco, and I saw the posting for the group that you and I started to work together at, OPPO. Mm-hmm. And I read through this job application and I said, wow, I could do this. I really like this. I've, you know, I'm sort of in tech, so I understand product development. I understand change management and organizational behavior. I can do this job. And I sent in my application and then I reached out on LinkedIn to, uh, his name is Bill Allen, who was the head of HR at Macy's at the time. And I sent him a note and I said, hi, Bill. I'm not sure if you remember me. You hired me in Copenhagen at Maersk in 2006 to work for Jesper Thompson. I was wondering if you could point me towards the hiring manager for this position. And he did. And he got my resume over to the Macy's.com people. It went to the head of HR over there. Then it went to the recruiters. 
and then someone matched that with my regular application through the website and I got a phone call asking if I would be interested in applying for this particular position and we have Cindy Peterson who's ready to uh, be the hiring manager and uh, interview you essentially. Awesome. That's, that's interesting how it played out. And again, back to networking, right? It is so important. It is. And it's really, it's also back to those people who will support you and sponsor you. Um, I would like to think that I got into Macy's on my merits and that I was qualified for this job. Um, it was about a year into my tenure at Macy's that evidently Cindy told me that Bill Allen had called the head of HR at Macy's.com and said, find her a job, not you know, interview her for a job. So there, it was nice to have someone speaking in my corner. Yeah. Um, but I do think that I was still hired on my merits anyway. I think that y you can't have um, one without the other. I think that, you know, you, one, you have to be able to stand on your own and that's your merits, your experience, your education, your, your um, just know-how and ability to do the job is certainly needs to be there. But to distinguish yourself from the, thousands or maybe tens of thousands of resumes that come in you need to have somebody to be able to sort of find that short path to the hiring manager at least to hr to say hey you know what take a look at this person you know they're really good and if you hadn't if you hadn't told me about this it would have been buried in this stack of, i'm still thinking of actual physical pieces of paper printed out but you know it may just be in somebody's inbox or in some queue that just never gets seen you know absolutely and for me even though I have two master's degrees, what I don't have is an MBA. And I find that my resume gets passed over a lot because I don't have those three letters, because mm -hmm. there's some software that's, when they get 100 applications for one position, that's an easy filtering criteria mm -hmm. that they put in there. Yeah, And I really felt like at the time, I just wasn't getting those interviews that I, I had hoped for. I, I think the track record that I could say now, 20 years into my career is, if I can get to the second interview, my chances of getting the job go up exponentially. Yeah. But if I can't get, even that, if no one will look at my resume because I'm missing something, I haven't yet figured out how to tweak my resume so that it gets looked at every time. I'll have to listen to your podcast to learn more about that. <laughs> well, my answer to that is what we've been saying all along, it's networking. I think yeah. you can have a PhD in networking and that will go a long way to filling the gap that those three letters you mentioned um, don't have. Yeah. Because I, I think I don't have an MBA and um, it's, you know, I've, I've leveraged a way to sort of connect and to learn about companies and that has served me well. And I know I've been passed over for opportunities because I didn't have a graduate degree, but um, it's also, it's just a, it's a hurdle. You know, I think that, you know, if I did case studies 25 years ago to get my master's or my MBA, it probably wouldn't be relevant today, you know, but um, I think that the 20 years of experience probably weighs much more heavily on my ability to do the job now, but it's a filtering criteria and I get it. That's how the game's played. Um, but you know, it's not always for everybody, but there are ways to compensate for that too. Absolutely. And I enjoyed my time at Macy's. I got to meet you. I got to meet Cindy. The whole team was really the first place that I had felt like I belonged mm -hmm. in, that when I was back in the States. 
we had a good rapport, we had a good culture. Was Macy's the best company to work for? No, but it didn't matter to me because I had the right team. Yeah. And at Macy's, after bouncing around a little bit back in the States, when I look back and I think about Macy's and I think about Marisk, that was when I realized that for me personally, the people I'm going to work with is more important than the job I'm going to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. And it says a lot about Cindy, about how she built the team, how she managed the team and how she motivated us, you know, but I also want to touch too on some of the things that you were working on is kind of, you know, the, the projects that you picked up and, and really moved along was pretty fascinating to me about how communication happens and email and metrics behind it. Can you touch a little bit on what you did and, and what were some of the lessons of it? Absolutely. So as part of our improvement efforts with the organizational effectiveness team at Macy's that it became known as, we were approached by Microsoft to see if we wanted to trial some of their new software. And basically the software had two components, an organizational layer and an individual layer. And the easiest way to think about it is it was a Fitbit for your calendar. It was going to help you understand how much time you spent in meetings, how much time you spent in email, and most importantly, how much time you spent writing emails while you were in meetings and should have been doing something else. And the idea behind that was at the individual level that you could set goals for yourself of, I want more time to focus on X. So the best way to do that is to track how much time you're spending not on X and then pull it back. At an organizational level, you can do the same types of calculations, but just at an aggregate level. So we could do things like say, well, we're paying our developers to develop code but it also looks like we're paying them to spend 50% of their time in meetings when they are not developing code or when they are developing code that is probably pretty buggy because they're trying to listen to a meeting at the same time. Yep. And by using those metrics, we were able to go in and say, how could we affect this? How could we run an intervention that would help people change their behavior. And we did that by working with a fabulous group of people at a consulting company called Stop Meeting Like This. I highly recommend everyone go check out their website and their uh, articles that have been published in a number of different magazines. Stopmeetinglikethis.com just changed the way I thought about how work should be done. And I got to spend six months taking what I learned from Stop Meeting Like This to the folks at Macy's to help them change the way that they were working as well. Yeah, that's, um, to me, that was eye-opening to use metrics to, you know, modify what we all knew was a problem. And that's, I'm in too many meetings. I, I'm, you know, you have an open access to my calendar and I, the implication is that if I book a meeting, you have to show up. And you're right, there were developers that were multitasking um, and it just, it just opened I think a lot of people's eyes to how much waste was really going on and how should you optimize that, you know, and that's kind of been, a, I think a, a pattern that you've shown through a lot of the roles that you've had around just getting, you know, breaking the mold and doing something that just is much more efficient, you know, all the way back to that lean model that you first started talking about. 
absolutely it is that lean model i feel like i was educated to look for waste and find value everywhere um, and another important part of that lean model is that the person who's on the front line knows best. And so I felt like I was raised almost by those folks at MIT to be on the lookout for ways to make things better and to not be scared about voicing that. Yeah. Um, now, I, I at Macy's, that was well accepted that it worked well, though I will say there were definitely a couple of people who threw me out of their office when I told them their developers <laughs> were spending too much time in meetings. Yeah. Everyone wants to question the numbers and that's okay. Yeah. But at the same time, I've learned about myself that I do like that problem solving. I never want to work in a place where someone says, well, Jess, that's how we do it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, unfortunately, there's still, well, it's, how you want to look at it, right? There's opportunity to improve on those uh, leadership styles. Exactly. But, uh, yeah, when Oppo showed up the door, it was kind of like the old joke where Mike Wallace from CV, or, uh, 60 Minutes shows up. You know, <laughs> you know there's, there's going to be some difficult conversations, uh, but, you know, it's all in, um, in the interest of doing things better. Exactly. So you, you left Oppo and you left San Francisco. And what was the driving force to, to move on? The driving force there was Microsoft. I got caught up in the swell, in the reputation, in the, the monolith that is Microsoft. Because I was, spent the last year of, at Macy's working with this new software package at Microsoft, I ended up doing a lot of research with Microsoft. I was, we at Macy's were essentially the research subjects. Mm -hmm. And it was a networking thing. Again, I met people, I met researchers on the office research team to the point where I remember three months before it happened, Cindy and I were talking about my career plans. I said, I'm really happy here. We had plans to expand OBO. We wanted to move out beyond Macy's.com into other parts of the organization. And I, I said, yep, Cindy, I'm here with you. I'm, I'm in for the long haul, unless Microsoft calls and offers me a job. <laughs> and, and what happened? <laughs> Microsoft called and kind of offered me a job. Um, I still I remember again, no one handed me anything. Yeah. Uh, but I had become friends with the person who was going to be my boss. And so when he had an unexpected opening on his team, a woman on his team decided not to come back from maternity leave. He had an opening and he called and he said, would you be interested in interviewing? And I was fascinated by his role. It, would, it meant getting back to travel. It meant getting back to customers. It meant working for Microsoft. I said, absolutely. Do I have to move to Seattle? And he said, yes. <laughs> and at the time, my husband was, had recently quit his job. He went to work at a startup that did not go well. And uh, he was burned out and needed a break. And moving to Seattle would allow us to rejigger our finances so that he could take some time off. And again, it was an alignment of this was going to be a great job opportunity that was the right decision for my family. Mm -hmm. And we had to take it. Makes total sense. Well, I, I remember when you, you got that opportunity, it was like this was your dream job, like you said, unless Microsoft called, but... Um, I know you're pretty stoked and, and the work that you were doing at Macy's, you were able to kind of build on that when you got to Microsoft. 
Exactly. I, my first jobs at Microsoft were actually being an official researcher for the same products I had been working on mm -hmm. at Macy's. So it yeah. was somewhat of a natural transition. Yeah, that's really cool. So not the final stop for you, though. So um, you, you wind up, um, you were at Microsoft for, what was it like tw two years or something? A little bit less, about 18, yeah. 19 months, I think. Okay. Um, and here's the deal. Um, because I'm speaking publicly, I'm going to do so nicely. Yep. I really loved my job at Microsoft. The, the, what I was actually doing was fascinating, but it was hard. And I was traveling every other week and I was often away for two to three weeks at a time in different time zones and away from my husband and our dogs. I never built a connection to Seattle because I was away so much. And when things started to break down on my team and I started to realize that this was a place where people were saying, nope, Jess, this is how we've always done it. It wasn't the right place for me anymore. Mm. I think it was a mutual decision. I think that had I not left, I would have been very quickly facing a serious performance improvement plan. I was not motivated. I was physically feeling ill going into the office every day and I had to get away. And yeah. my husband, I will never forget the moment I woke up. It was, must have been six o'clock in the morning. I was in Szczecin, uh, Poland. I had just finished some research activities. And of course, uh, 6 a.m. in Poland is 9 p.m. in Seattle. And I picked up my phone to call my husband to say good morning and to say good night to him. And there was a message from my boss not important what it was about at the time, but I felt like he was berating me and patronizing me through a team's message. Mm -hmm. And I said, this is it. I'm not doing this anymore. And that day I spoke to my husband, probably in tears. I said, I cannot work here anymore. We need to figure out something else. And that was kind of when we started my exit plan. Mm -hmm. um, so that was May. I didn't end up leaving Microsoft until August, but it was absolutely the right thing to do. And because we hadn't made real ties to Seattle, we decided it was finally time to come back to New York and be closer to family. Makes total sense. Yeah. And you know, sometimes, and it's, it's not a, I don't take that as a reflection on Microsoft. I just think that, you know, it's sometimes, you know, it's all about fit, right? We've talked before about culture and, not every place is right for everybody. Um, and what could have been good for you at 25 is maybe different at 45. So it's, um, you know, I think I, I totally understand um, where something can just not be the right fit. Or even, even a manager can change what's, you know, a great opportunity and a great role into, yeah, you know what? I'm not feeling the love anymore. So that's, that's an important lesson too, is that you always kind of need to be aware of not just about the job or the company, but, the culture and the manager. I mean, that kind of all goes hand in hand. The people that I worked with at Microsoft were brilliant and well-intentioned. And as you're saying, I just didn't fit in on the exact team and I made mistakes and I burned some bridges mm -hmm. and looking back on it, I think had I, because we had moved from San Francisco 
to Seattle for Microsoft. And because I had uprooted my whole family and my whole life essentially, and because I had painted this as my dream job, I probably stayed in the job too long. I think I knew three months in that it wasn't a fit and I was blinded by the international travel and the fact that it was Microsoft and the fact that we had just uprooted our lives. And so it felt, it was difficult. It was agonizing to make the decision to finally leave. Mm -hmm. And at that point, both my husband and I were unemployed. We moved to New York and signed a lease for an apartment without having jobs. Um, We took a giant leap of faith, right? If you thought the leap of faith moving from Boston to Copenhagen was big, that was nothing compared to this. Because there we knew he had a job. We knew we had an apartment. We knew we had a paycheck. Moving to New York, we had none of that. Yeah. And that's where I'll say my networking story ends because I spent the next couple of months applying for jobs through LinkedIn, just like everyone else. I applied at Slack. I got an interview at Slack. Took them three months to hire me. And I started in November of 2019. And I am the happiest I have ever been in my professional career that's that's awesome that is that is a great story and again it's you know it's pushing through fear you know and and knowing that you know it's the right decision for you and your husband you know you don't have a job but you're going to be closer to home family um it's kind of the right move for you guys at at the right time and uh that you you can also get through to a job without having somebody walk a resume into the hiring manager and saying hire this person but I also do know that you are a raving fan of your current company because I am. I'm, I a fan. <laughs> I'm going to plug this right now. Cause I know when you and I were talking about this podcast and I said, give me your email address and I'll send you the information. You're like, what? No, send it to me in Slack. So I, I really do. I truly love Slack, the company, Slack, the people and Slack, the product. Um, I never used Slack before I got to working for Slack. Yeah. I remember my, my onboarding class, the first three days, they teach Slack 101 as part of onboarding. And there were people in the class who had, of course, used it before. And they're having you search for things and doing little scavenger hunts and learning how to format text and things like that. And I was way slower than everyone in the class. And I'm looking around and I'm like, dude, I have 20 years of work experience and I mm-hmm. could, you know give a presentation and in circles around these people, but I yeah. do not how to do not know how to react to something with a hat emoji. Like it was just, <laughs> I had to learn a new way of communicating, but man, nine months later, I can't imagine going back to email. It's the way Slack allows you to compartmentalize conversations and topics while at the same time having access to virtually everything else that's going on in the company. I've just never found that in a collaboration software tool anywhere. So you would describe Slack, um, I guess the product category is collaboration software. The product category is technically channel-based messaging. Okay. Um, The reason being that because like a lot of other companies, we still use Zoom for our video conferencing Mm -hmm. and we still use the G Suite for in-document editing and sharing and things like that. So there are other pieces of our collaboration suite that we use, 
but Slack itself is a way to organize information that puts it at everyone's fingertips. And that's the difference. It's not just at your fingertips. It's not just at your team's fingertips. It's literally available for everyone. And for me, the, the combination of Slack the people and Slack the product is, it just makes work so much easier. I'll give you an example from just today. I had a customer who I'm a customer success manager, so I help customers get value from Slack. And I have one big customer that wanted to do some uh, analysis on one particular channel. Okay, I know how to get channel-based reports, but this customer was asking for a report that could look at channel membership and activity over time. And I had no idea how to find that. And so at an old company, I would have had to walk the halls or email the three people that I knew and chase down information. Instead, all I had to do here was go to our help-customer success channel where the 200 people who have jobs like mine or adjacent to mine are all monitoring on a regular basis. I used a blue dot to indicate that it wasn't an emergency, but I kind of need an answer in the next day or so. Um, wrote in my question, and because I'm crowdsourcing from so many different people, within three minutes, I got an answer with a uh, link directly to the analytics dashboard that I could use. The colleague was able, also able to show me how she uses this for her customer on a regular basis. I got some ideas and inspiration. I was able to answer my customer's question faster than I would, thought I would be able to. And more importantly, because it was done in a public channel, the next person who has this question can do a search and they're going to find this answer and be able to build on it again. That is, that is, um, that's a great testimony because, you know, as you were starting to describe this, I'm thinking, okay, I'm thinking in the, in the old style world, like, okay, I can either send an email to it supported company name.com or I've got a ticketing system and I can put in a ticket to, you know, support it, whatever. But you're right. That's just a one to one transactional piece. And you may have on the support side, oh, there's a group of techs that can kind of see, all right, this is a solution here and they can kind of figure it out. So the next time they get an email or a ticket coming in, they can answer it better. But to your point, let's take it to a new level and saying, you know what? It doesn't need to be one-to-one. It could be many-to-many. And you've got an archive. You, you were able to get that. And what was the turn on time? It was hours or days? Yeah. So, I mean, it's just amazing. So that, that resonates for me a little bit better about what Slack does. Cause I, I haven't worked for a company that had Slack embedded as their community, you know, one of their communication tools. And I think, you know, bigger companies typically have had a struggle to onboard that, or they've got a, a huge, you know, enterprise agreement with Microsoft. And so they're kind of tied to those tools. And so they're less likely to bring in some of these newer, uh, more nimble ones. So I'd heard a lot about Slack, but we're actually using it now. And I'm starting to see every week the value with it. Absolutely. And, and I should also add to that, that when I did get the answer and wanted to take it back to the customer, I actually talked to the customer in a Slack channel. Because okay. in Slack, we can link to different Slack instances mm-hmm. um, in what's called a Slack Connect channel. So I didn't even have to go out to email to talk to the customer. I could share and upload the document and the images directly there. He could download it. We don't have to worry about Dropbox links or anything else like that. It just mm-hmm. makes things 
super fast and easy. Yeah, that's great. Well, this, um, what a great journey. Um, you know, I, I, some of these things I didn't really know about. Um, and I was always curious to see how you got started, um, you know, coming out of high school and college to what you're doing now. Yeah. So, I gotta tell you, it's, it's been a crazy windy journey from astronaut to Slack CSM. And yeah. It makes for a great story. I mean, I, you've, you've, uh, you have honored me with this, whatever it's been, 70 minutes that we've been talking. If you do, I, I have been known to get it down to the 30-second party version. Um, when <laughs> but what's the fun in that? I mean, because I, I think that there's, there's a lot to be gleaned from this and that you don't have to figure out your life at 18 or 22. And so I'm going to kind of, you know, turn it back to you now and to say, you know, lessons learned. So if you... Um, and this may not necessarily apply to you, but, you know, I asked the question, if you could go back in time, what advice would you give yourself? But what are some things that you can just say based on your journey to the listeners out there that uh, would be helpful um, at, a, at a younger age? Hmm. I think I would say that it's okay to change your mind. It's okay to pivot. That's kind of been the biggest defining factor of my career mm -hmm. in giving myself permission to do something differently whether it was walking away from grad school or moving to Copenhagen or leaving Microsoft because it wasn't the job it turned out to be. It's okay to make changes. And I know that I've been fortunate to have a support system and to have the financial stability to make those changes mm -hmm. that not everyone can. And I want, I want people to not pass up those change moments just because something is is standing in the way if it's of course i understand financial instability and everyone will make the right decision for them but make sure that you're thoughtful and mindful and all those hippy dippy words that that say to to not make the decision too quickly yeah it's a really good point because i i think that you have to also be aware of those opportunities and some self-inflection. I think you, you're really insightful about what you like, what you don't like, what your strengths are and where your comfort level is. And I think that's, that is some people struggle, especially at an early age. You know, sometimes you have to kind of learn, you know, school of hard knocks and trying to figure out what you don't like to, before you start to really crystallize what you do like and then go after that. And but I think, Oh, go ahead. Add to that. As I've gotten older, I've learned not to, I don't want to say lie. Lie is too strong of a word. I've learned not to hide who I am in interviews. Yeah. I, it's easy to sit there for 60 minutes and convince yourself and convince the hiring manager that you would be a good fit for that organization. But if you're, if it takes energy to put up that different person for those 60 minutes, just imagine how much energy it's going to take for you to do that day in and day out. Mm -hmm. And that's no way to live. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a hard concept to rationalize, especially if you are, you know, young and broke and need a yeah. job. Yeah. Um, because you're right. You'll be, you'll morph to whatever that best person is they're looking for but you're going to have to do some internal soul searching to figure out, okay, three months from now, how do I get out of bed on a Monday morning and do the best that I can or open up my mind to, you know, further 
you know, this company or this project or whatever I'm assigned to or whatever I'm working on. Cause that's, it, it is, yeah, you're right. You can fake it for an hour, but you know, to fake it for a career, that's a whole different level of acting. Absolutely. And, and I hope that people don't take that to say like, you have to have every qualification on a job application. As you mentioned, you don't. And there is the fake it till you make it in terms of skills mm-hmm. that I'm a full believer in. Like, tell someone you could do something and as long as you have the gumption to run home and do enough research so that you can do it by the next day, Mm -hmm. I'm totally fine with that. It's on that emotional level that if you're not comfortable and you're not smiling at the end of every day, it's worth asking yourself why you're still there. Yeah. Well put. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for um, just kind of walking through your career. Fascinating. Um, I definitely learned a lot today. Thank you for uh, just sharing some of your experiences and, and lessons learned for the younger audience. So, and, and for the parents of some of those younger audiences too. So this is, this is great, uh, great to kind of hear. So thanks again for your time today. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. I had a lot of fun. I'm a fan of the podcast, and so I hope folks enjoy this episode as much as some of the others. And um, if you're listening to this, go on to LinkedIn. You can definitely find me. You just have to know the secret, which is my middle name, which is Lauren, Jessica Lauren Cohen at Slack. You'll be able to find me pretty quickly and drop a note and say hi and let me know if you need some career advice. That'd be great. And I'll put the links in the podcast as well so people can find you easily. Perfect. All right. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks, Paul. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.